going to start sharing w- with y'all some things that uh, various and sundry global things that come across my desk that I think would tune us into a big, big world, big God, lots of things that would take us outside of Greenville that I think are good for us. Let me start with prayer and we'll climb into our evening. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you so much for this time we've ha- we'll have together tonight. We value the uh, freedom that we have to gather. We don't take it for granted. We just appreciate um, this word, this uh, life-changing, uh, bone marrow-penetrating word that is in our language. And uh, even in different versions, we, we don't want to take that for granted either. Lord, we're thankful that we can speak freely and openly about the truth. Just pray that we will take advantage of that and we'll be all here and we'll be engaged in things that matter. Pray that tonight that you will just uh, show us more of what what your uh, what your character is and your redemptive design and your pattern, and that we can see a bigger God and a um, more sovereign God, and that we can understand you more as a result of the time we spend in your Word tonight. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Okay. I'm getting something from the voice of the martyrs. It's called Prisoner Alert or Prisoner Profile. It's just some updates on folks that, that are in different situations throughout the world. And uh, they're really encouraging for me. It's funny, after reading about Haim's story on Sunday morning, listen to this story. Uh, a guy named Issa Matamidi Majdehi. Issa Matamidi Majdehi. Thankfully, I won't have to read, read his name very much. He, this is, um, the location is Iran. It says, no personal prison address is available for Isa. Please be an advocate on his behalf and contact government officials. Isa and his wife, Parva, attempted to register the birth of their son, Micah, who was born in January, with the Civil Population Bureau. Selecting such a biblical name may have caused the authorities to begin investigating this Christian family. Isa was arrested July 24th on false charges of drug trafficking. At the time of his July 24th arrest, the convert was told he must renounce Christianity or face years in jail and possible execution for his apostasy, apostasy from the Muslim faith. Under Iran's judicial system based on Islamic, Islamic law, anyone who leaves Islam for another religion has committed a capital offense. Lachan pr- prison officials reportedly tried for days to force him to confess to being involved in illegal drug trafficking. Using strong psychological pressures, including threats to kill his family and other Christian believers, believers, Isa was interrogated by secret service agents and a professor of Islamic theology who urged him to recant his Christian faith and return to Islam. Isa refused to do so. Iranian court authorities in the northern city of Rashta have released Isa. He was granted bail on August 24th, but the judge introduced new accusations against him at his hearing. According to unnamed confidential witnesses, the judge said the convert's eight-year-old daughter, Martha, allegedly had been trying to lead other children to the Christian faith. That's rich right there, isn't it? He was reunited with his wife, Parva, and his two children following his release. He's moved his family to an undisclosed location, but is subject to be recalled to court. Issa converted to Christianity seven years ago. Here's his request. Pray for me that I would be stronger in my faith. <laughs> Hello. He said, pray for us. Isa told other believers that the, calmness or that the calmness and protection God gave him during his time in prison uh, were miraculous. We can pray for Isa and his family right now and uh, just pray that there will be a bright light and a salty, sweet, aromatic witness in a dark place. And uh, pray that his faithfulness will be something that has an impact on believers on this side of the world. Let's pray for Isa. Lord, we appreciate this story and appreciate the um, details and even the uh, trials and sufferings of a faithful uh, believer. Lord, we just pray for Isa and his family that they will be strong. And we pray with Isa that he will grow uh, even stronger and more and more in his faith. Lord, we pray that he will be a model that we can imitate on this side of the world and that we can be bold in our witness because we see a man that will... Um, will stand up to uh, interrogation and stand up to even fear tactics and and will stand firm. 
We just appreciate his witness. We pray for his family. We pray for little Martha that's uh, sharing her faith as an eight-year-old. Pray that you will just um, have a powerful witness through this family in uh, Iran and uh, that you will draw those lost sheep that are in Iran that have not been found yet, that you will draw them to you through the the message that uh, this family is portraying through their lives and through their mouths. Uh, We love you, Lord. We thank you so much that we are in fellowship with Isa, even right now as we lift him up through a finished work and through a cross and an empty tomb and a shared Lord. And uh, it's in that work and by that work that we pray for this brother. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I've got some other profiles that I'll share from time to time that blow your mind. Good stuff. Hey. Is it? Yeah, that's cool. Where's my pen? Bummer. Okay, the other thing I have is a uh, Austin News from Malik and Olga. This is a, a couple that uh, are in Austin right now that Jake and Stephanie are working with, and it's a one-pager little news update for things that they've been involved in and uh, ways that we can pray and just so you can be involved with uh, what's going on with these guys. Jason, can, if you can pass that out to this side. Jason, if you can pass that out to this side. It's pretty cool how I planned that, isn't it? I'll show preference to Jason's. Yeah. That's cool. They're working real closely with uh, Jake and Stephanie. Newlyweds. Huh? Great. Okay, we are uh, in a study. It's called Two Wills of God Study. That is is a new study for me. It's actually something that I've um, kind of heard about and never really spent any time considering. But as we began to look at this Exodus story where God is telling um, Moses to go back to Egypt and set his people free, and then at the same time he's hardening Pharaoh's heart to where he won't, you know, this this study has kind of helped me sort that out and kind of helped me reconcile some of that. And it's really illuminated a lot of other weird tensions that you're not really attentive to, but once you see them, you go, man, look at that. And... It's kind of like, um, I think it, I, was, I was thinking about this, I was talking with Christy about this the other day. If you've never been taught about the color red and you lived your whole life, you had this color that was out there and it was unidentified and once you were taught about it, you're like, man, it's everywhere. And this is kind of where this is, where you're beginning to see this tension where God ordains one thing and wills one thing and then yet he seems to will and ordain something that is in tension with that, not contradicting it, but in tension with that, where he shows up as a big God. And really the whole big picture there is a picture of sovereignty. That what it helps us understand is that nothing happens without God's uh, design, our permission, um, our direct involvement, our direct allowance, uh, either the influence of his hand or even the removal of his hand. It's all by his design. And um, as you see a bigger God, just your perspective on the word changes, your perspective on salvation changes, just so much changes. And, and I think that in the reflection of seeing a bigger God and a more biblically robust image of who he is and how he works, it's in that reflection that we see a more biblical image of who we are and aren't. And it's pretty cool. It's kind of like this whole new um, God. He's been the same all along, but it escorts you into a new place. Um, turn to Leviticus chapter 14. Bill, Bill and Deborah have been in on this study. Bill and Deborah Ruth have been on this study for these last few weeks. And Bill sent me an email this week about this two wills of God, uh, about an, another example that he found. And... Um, I was reading this example that he found, and it seemed like it would be a great place for us to start tonight. 
and to consider. Um, we're going to start in Leviticus chapter 14, verse 33. If you're familiar with this section in Leviticus, it's a chapters on leprosy and skin diseases and um, all different sorts of uncleanness and cleanness and what's considered ceremonially clean and unclean. And this, in verse 33, begins to address a, um, a leprous house. So listen to this, this, these details. Verse 33 of chapter 14, Leviticus. The Lord further spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, When you enter the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession, and I put a mark of leprosy on a house in the land you, uh, of your possession, then, da-da-da-da, we're going to look at that in a minute. But I want to call your attention to, to what we just read. When you enter the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession. I mean, you see sovereignty there. God gives the land. You see God on his throne. And I put a mark of leprosy on a house in the land of your possession. Who's doing that? Who's putting a mark of leprosy on this house? God is doing that. Okay, now listen, let's, let's go on. I put a mark of leprosy on the house in the land of your possession. Then the one who owns the house shall come and tell the priest, saying... Something like a mark of leprosy has become visible to me in the house. The priest shall then command that, the em- that they empty the house before the priest goes in to look at the mark so that everything in the house need not become unclean. And afterward, the priest shall go in to look at the house. So he shall look at the mark. And if the mark on the walls of the house is greenish or reddish depressions and appears deeper than the surface, then the priest shall come out of the house to the doorway and quarantine the house for seven days. Does anybody know what this is? Can a house have leprosy? It's probably mold. Yeah, I mean, it's not like leprosy, like your nose sloughing off your face. That A house is not organic. It doesn't have the ability to have that. But it's something probably like that with mold or some sort of uh, termites or something. I don't know. It's probably mold. It seems to be when they were talking, start talking about colors and things like that. The priest shall return on the seventh day and make an inspection. If the mark has indeed spread in the walls of the house, then the priest shall order them to tear out the stones with the mark in them and throw them away at an unclean place outside the city. He shall have the house scraped all around inside, and they shall dump the plaster that they scrape off at an unclean place outside the city. Now, let me, let me ask a question before I continue. Who did this? Who put the mark of, the, mark of leprosy on the house? God did. Okay, I just want to make sure we don't forget that. Then they shall take other stones and replace those stones, and he shall take other plaster and replaster the house. Lots of work involved there, and God did this. If, however, the mark breaks out again in the house after he has torn out the stones and scraped the house, and after it's been replastered, then the priest shall come in and make an inspection. If he sees that the mark is indeed spread in the house, it is a malignant mark in the house. It is unclean. He shall therefore tear down the house, its stones and its timbers, and all the plaster in the house, and he shall take them outside the city to an unclean place. Moreover, whoever goes into the house during the time that he has quarantined it becomes unclean until evening. Likewise, whoever lies down in the house shall wash his clothes, and whoever eats in the house shall wash his clothes. If, on the other hand, the priest comes in and makes an inspection and the mark has not indeed spread in the house after the house has been replastered, then the priest shall pronounce the house clean because the mark has not reappeared. To cleanse the house, then, he shall take two birds and cedar wood and a scarlet string and hyssop, and he shall slaughter the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. Then he shall take the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet string with the live bird and dip them in the blood of the slain bird as well as the running water and sprinkle the house seven times. He shall thus cleanse the, clean, cleanse the house with the blood of the bird and with the running water along with the live bird and with the cedar wood and with the hyssop and with the scarlet string. However, he shall let the live bird go free outside the city into the open field so he shall make atonement for the house and it will be clean. This is the law for any mark of leprosy, even for a scale, and for the leprous garment or house, and for a swelling, and for a scab, and for a bright spot, to teach when they are unclean and when they are clean. This is the law of leprosy. Now, I want to ask the question, and see if we can really make this leap. Lots of details there, isn't it? I want to ask the question, what, what do you think God's purpose is in this chapter? All these details. Let's just talk about the house. What's his purpose? 
Or what, what could be his purpose in all this work? He marks the house as leprous. And then he has them go through all this work to get it purified. What might God's purpose be in that? All right, I've asked and answered the question before about the purpose of Leviticus. Why all the drama? Why all the details? Why all the ritual? Why all the bake in this pot? If this person sneezes on you, you're unclean. If this gecko climbs onto your earthenware, you've got to go off to the pot store. Why all those details? Anybody remember that? I need Misty uh, Bryson here because she answers it every time. But somebody else that knows how she always answers it can answer it. Yeah, to distinguish between the clean and the unclean and the holy and the unholy. Look at chapter 10, verse 10. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10. This is... Um, Talking about um, the priests. The Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It's a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And why is he doing this? Why these details for the priests? So as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean. And so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Turn the next... Um, chapter over to chapter 11 verse 47 to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten this is all the details about which critters are okay to eat and which aren't which are clean and which aren't clean and why all those details why all that drama why all that this verbiage to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean and the holy and the unholy. And then in chapter 14, verse 57, we just read it, but now when we're seeing it in context of what we're talking about, this is the law for any mark of leprosy in verse 54, actually. Even for a scale and for the leprous garment or house and for a swelling and for a scab and for a bright spot. Why? To teach when they are unclean and when they are clean. This is the law of leprosy. Now, there's also in verse 53 that if we can agree those are his purposes, first of all, to distinguish between the clean and the unclean, the holy and the unholy, and also to, to, to teach them in verse 52. He shall thus clean the house with the blood of the bird and with the running water. He's getting them acquainted with the concept of being cleansed by the blood of another. He's teaching them. This house is going to be atoned for by the blood of who in this case? Or the blood of what? A blood of a bird. That's right. And they t mix it with water and sprinkle it across the side of the building seven times. So those are two things, of two purposes for this chapter. Here's a third one in verse 53. So he shall make atonement for the house. He's getting them acquainted with the idea of the necessity for atonement for an unholy people and an unclean people. Okay? Now, if he can do this with a house, here's where we're going with this two wills thing. If he can do this with a house, mark it as having leprosy, and then have them going through all this detail to where they have to reconcile over this leprosy. They have to atone for the house. They have to rip out walls. They have to assess it. Nobody can sleep in it. They have to take everything out of the house. If he can do that with a house, he can do it with a person or with a people. If he can do that with a house, he can do it with a person or a people. Turn to Exodus chapter 11, verse 7. Exodus chapter 11, verse 7. Before I read this passage, I want to remind you, all this detail and all this drama in Leviticus is for the purpose of distinguishing between the holy and the unholy, the clean and the unclean, that God likes distinguishing. He likes to make a distinction now look at this passage in Exodus chapter 11, verse 7. 
We read this Sunday morning. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. If he can distinguish between this house and say this house has leprosy, bam, and this house doesn't. And if he can distinguish between house to house to to teach us the difference between the holy and the unholy and the clean and the unclean, he can do that with the people too. And he's distinguishing between Israel and Egypt. And he's like saying Israel, uh, in in Israel's case, I'm going to destroy the firstborn. And I'm going to be the destroyer, and in the same night, I'm going to be the deliverer for others. And how can he get away with that? Because he's God, and because he's sovereign, and because he's the creator. If he can distinguish between houses, he can distinguish between people, peoples. And now let me show you, he can distinguish even between people, individual. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter two. I am um, reading first and th- first and second Thessalonians just on my own and just reading it and rereading it, and um, a passage that has uh, really struck me. I'll share with you here in a moment. I'm trying to remember where I just was. Leviticus fourteen because I have my note there of the verse that I'm looking for here. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 11. I'm going to back up a couple verses, but I'm focusing primarily on verse 11. I'm going to begin in verse 8. Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the accordance or in accord with the activity of Satan, with all the power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception wickedness for those who perish. Now, I want you to hear that. For those who perish, he's about to distinguish people. For those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Who sends that deluding influence? Who gave the leprosy to the house? Who killed the firstborn of Egypt? Who was the destroyer on that night? Bailey quoted the verse from Hebrews right up here, Hebrews chapter 11, where he's called the destroyer, God. God did that. And God, in this case, is sending a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. That the same God that creates light and the God of light also created the darkness. And he created that tension where he shows up as the big deliverer, big D deliverer for some. If he can do it to a house, he can do it to a people's, and he can do it to a people. And why can he do this? Because he's God. And because he's sovereign. That's what sovereignty is. We're so Western and so individual, we have a tough time with this. But it's because we're centered, we're looking at it from the man's point of view. And man making decisions and man making choices and what man deserves and what man is about. And what we need to understand, this whole thing is about God. What's the theme throughout the Exodus that they may know what? That I am God. This whole thing is about him. It's not about us. And he's the same God yesterday that he is today that he, is, that he will be tomorrow. When he says, when he told, Ab- when he told uh, Moses, Moses said, well, who shall I say sent me? He said, you tell him I, I am that I am sent you. That's what that means. It, that's where the, the holy name Yahweh comes from, from the I am. And that's what it means. If you want to know who he was or who he is, look at who he was. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So he's not a different God now than he was then. He's the same God. So his redemptive pattern that we get to know in the Exodus is the same redemptive pattern that we can get to know now. Exactly, exactly. And we want to emphasize that. How does he keep a distance to the point where he doesn't create sin? He hardened Pharaoh's heart. We know that. And we know that resisting God is what? And it's futile, and it's what, what else is it? It's sin. 
So how, how can he harden Pharaoh's heart yet not sin? I don't know. But I just know that he does. Because I know there's throughout the word it says that he's not the author of sin. So I trust that. And yet, you remember the satellites we've talked about? The more satellites you add in, the more robust the reading on the GPS. That's the way this is. The more satellites you add in, if, you, if we didn't have the passages that tell us that he's not the author or that he will not author sin, then we might go to the place where we go, oh, well, yeah, he's created sin. But then we weigh in those satellites and we go, no. He somehow hardened Pharaoh's heart. He, he, he destroyed the firstborn of Egypt. And he deluded their minds, yet he doesn't author sin. How does he do that? I don't know. If sin, what, what, what would you, how would you define sin? Say that again? Okay, that, that's one word. Let's, let's just throw out some other words for sin. Okay, that may be a consequence of sin. What, what's, a, what's, a, what's another word for sin? Huh? Unrighteousness, yeah. Okay. Huh? Okay. All right, I'm looking for a word that starts with E. <laughs> e. Error. So if you look at it from that point of view, God can't error. He does not error. And he won't author error. So for him to harden Pharaoh's heart was not error. And Pharaoh res- Pharaoh's resultant sin, somehow God's able to keep a distance from that and still remain holy. I don't know how that works. Thankfully, that God's bigger than us, and we don't have to. We're not able to understand Him completely. We can just trust it. We see Him hardening hearts. We see Him creating these tensions, um, but yet we can trust that He doesn't author sin, but that He takes those dark situations and He shines brightly. In, in the Book of Genesis, He created light, but He also created darkness. It's a pretty cool picture. Okay, here's another example. Right there in the same book. Actually, turn back to 1 Thessalonians. Not the same book, but just a few pages earlier. We're looking at examples of God-ordained tension. That one was a little bit complicated. And um, these are now online, recorded online. That's why I'm wearing this. It's not because I need to project to 20 people. It's, uh, It's for the purpose of recording it. So if you're ever on a Wednesday night, you're like, man, that was just way over my head, then go listen to it again. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's encouraged. So you can go back and reread passages and take notes and things like that. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18. I told you that I'm reading uh, first, and th- first and Second Thessalonians frequently. And uh, here's a passage that a couple of, t- or a, a tension that emerged for me just from this book of First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Okay, we're, we're comfortable with that. We're comfortable with the thought of this kind of dualism sort of thing. That's really what's been fostered in most of us, where Satan does the bad things and God does the good things. And they're kind of intention, or intention against each other. Okay, now I wanted to introduce you to another verse in the same book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. I'm backing up a verse or two just, so, just for the sake of context. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we've been destined for these afflictions. So here's the weird thing. These, this resistance that Paul's facing and this suffering that he's facing and these hardships that he's facing were by appointment. He was predestined for those things and yet he acknowledges that Satan is the one that hindered their progress. Satan didn't do that without God's permission. And Satan did that too within God's design and yet God did not author the sin. How does that work? I don't know. It's just a big God, big mysterious God but we can trust that what it should do is give us a bigger view of God, that God is sovereign, that nothing happens. You can look in the newspaper, you can listen to the news and say that nothing happens, however horrible, without God knowing about it, first of all, and God either allowing it or God ordaining it. That, that shouldn't diminish your view of God, it should raise your view of God. Where you go, okay, even the darkest thing that you could possibly imagine in the news, 
that God allowed it for his own glory. And he can take those dark moments and those dark backdrops and shine brightly in a dark backdrop. It should give you a bigger view of God, if anything, that God is on his throne. He's not caught unawares. This is not a tug of war between good and evil. It's not a dualism. Uh, the devil is already lost. He lost when that tomb was left vacant. When Christ was hanging, hanging on the cross, he said, it is finished. And then on the third day, that tomb was vacant. Satan, the battle was over. So don't, don't view it as a tension. So whatever issue you face, cancer of mom, cancer of husband, Whatever it is, it's not to diminish it. It's just to say, let's put it in the place where it truly is. It's something that God knows about beforehand. And God either ordained it or God allowed it. And God can work all things together for what? For good. All things, not some things. All things together for good for those that love him. Even dark, heartbreaking tragedies. That, that should put God in the place where he is. Okay. Now we asked, began to ask the question last week. How sovereign is God? Is God in on my daily decisions? Is God involved in the minutia? Or is God just kind of involved in just the major issues? And then he'll come in and kind of finesse some things every now and again. Or is God completely separate? He just put things into motion and he's just kind of sitting back uninvolved. Let's consider the scripture. Amos chapter 3 verse 6. Some of these passages we looked at last week, some of them will be new to you. Amos chapter 3, verse 6. If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? It's asked as a as an, uh, an expected yes. Well, of course he's done it. Okay, here's the next verse. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. I'm going to look uh, actually half a verse earlier. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 6 and a half. That there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Man, if that doesn't just motivate you hearing that, I just hope that that motivates you hearing that. That there is no one besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness. What did I just say a few minutes ago? Who created darkness? God created darkness. He's sovereign. There's not a thing that he hadn't been involved in. He's the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Okay? Turn to Lamentations chapter 3. Yeah. And, and Cyrus. Yeah. Yeah. And they're wicked. And they're wicked. And, uh, you know, if the more time you spend in Revelation, the more acquainted you will become with a God that can orchestrate evil forces to his own ends, where he lets loose the hounds of hell to do his bidding of judgment, but yet he still remains holy and pure. How can he do that? I don't know, but he does. Destruction. Right. Lamentations chapter 3, I, I want to share something with you before I read that. Whenever Moses was speaking with God and God said, um, told him to go back to Egypt and to lead his people out and go to Pharaoh, Moses was trying to talk him out of it. You know, I've never been a good speaker and all that. And what did God tell Moses? He said, who makes man's mouth? Who makes man, men mute or deaf or blind? I do. And, you know, you need to realize that, that you know, even the worst um, autism, um, Down syndrome, all that stuff, those aren't an accident. <laughs> Blindness is not an accident. It's an opportunity for God to be glorified. And God wasn't caught unawares. God's not knitting together in the womb, but then Satan sneaks in and goes, Snip, I'm going to undo something God did. Mm-mm. 
God knits us together in the womb, and it's not by mistake. When you see a kid with downs, it's not a mistake. That's a little creation of God right there. Formed and made the way God wanted to be made. Parents of of a Down syndrome kid will tell you that, man, they, they, they get to see God in a way that none of us can hardly even imagine. Now, I don't know about unbelieving parents, but those parents that know the Lord can testify to a pretty cool thing that God's shown them. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? It is, not, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? And here's a passage from Job, Job chapter 2. This may be introducing you to a God that you've never met before. Job chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job. Remember we talked about smoting? Man, that's no fun. You don't want to get smote. That's a bad deal. Smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. And then his wife, the beautiful ray of sunshine, sunbeam that she is, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed set except good from God and not accept adversity. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. It wasn't a mistake what he was saying. It was the truth. He did not err with his lips. He was speaking the truth. Shall we accept good from God and not adversity? Now, in these passages that I just read, in all of them, the calamities involve human hostilities, cruelties, and suffering, or maybe human deficiencies, that God would disapprove of even as he wills them. Let me say that again. In these passages that we just read, the calamities involve human hostilities, cruelties, suffering, or human deficiencies that God would disapprove of even as he wills them. Now, I want to ask the question, is God sovereign over the suffering of his people? Let's turn to 1 Peter. Is God sovereign over the suffering of His people? Or is He caught unawares? Is is He not paying attention when His people that He professes to love experience suffering? What's going on there? First of all, where is God when His people suffer? 1 Peter 3, verse 17. Can it be God's will? For his people to suffer. Verse 17. For it is better if God should will it so. That you suffer for doing what is right. Rather than for doing what is wrong. Now if that's the only verse that we had in 1 Peter. And in other passages we're about to look at. Then we could realize well that's a comparison. You know, so maybe he's not implying there that it could be God's will. For his people to suffer at all. But let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 19. Just the next chapter over. Therefore, those also who suffer, according to what? According to the will of God, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Man, if that doesn't just rock your world. Man, I so many people in this room have experienced suffering. We, we haven't experienced the sort of suffering necessarily that these guys, where their family members are murdered or burned at a stake around a coliseum or you know we hadn't experienced that sort of suffering but we've experienced the suffering at the hands of a fallen world and just the consequences of of our fallenness therefore those also who suffer according to the will of god shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right who's the one in charge there and who's the creator god is And can it be right? Yeah, in fact, it can be right that we suffer. And it can be God's will that we suffer. Now, look at Revelation chapter... Well, before you turn there, since we're in 1 Peter, look at chapter 1. 
verse 6 and 7. Ron preached this passage just a, just a few weeks ago, and this, pe- this passage here has ministered to me so much in these last few weeks because I, some of the times where I feel like things that are actually inhibiting the gospel are inhibiting God's work may be the very instrument for Christ to be revealed. Listen to this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Okay, you rejoice, even if you're experiencing and distressed by various trials, so that, you know I love so that's, because they tell us why. I want to know why. So that, why would you be distressed by various trials? So the proof of your faith be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at what? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the revealing of Jesus Christ. So these sufferings and these trials and these losses and these heartaches and these things that God's will, these things that we're saying, Lord, liberate me from this so I can move on with your mighty purpose and plan. It may be his very purpose and plan that you're in those things because what happens in that? So that, in that trial, the proof of your faith is found to result in praise and glory and honor when Christ is revealed. Bam! That Christ can be, and in fact, is revealed through our sufferings. The very thing that we're begging Him to liberate us from is the very thing that will display His Son. Isn't that crazy? So yeah, God's people can experience suffering. And it can be God's will for His own people to suffer. Revelation chapter 2 It's probably been a year, year and a half or so ago, we took a little break from the book of John, and uh, I preached through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, and we got acquainted with these seven churches in the book of Revelation. And one of my favorite churches is um, Suffering Smyrna. And you know what's funny is they're one of the most faithful of the seven. Philadelphia is another faithful one. But Smyrna, the faithful ones, you know, we have this thought that if we're faithful, we'll be spared suffering. If we're faithful, God will protect us and guard us and liberate us and deliver us from all these things. Listen to this faithful Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who is dead and has come to life, say this, I know your tribulation and your poverty. He knows because he's on the throne. That's what we've just said. He's not caught unawares. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, by the way. And the blasphemy by which are by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are in the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Wait a second. I thought you were going to protect this. God liberates from suffering. Could it be your will to suffer? Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Just another picture of um, surprise suffering at the hands of God's will. Can you say that? Yeah, God's will that they suffer. Now, I want to introduce you to the mindset of the New Testament believer in regards to sovereignty. Turn to Acts chapter 18. What did the New Testament believer think about how sovereign is God? This is going to be kind of a shotgun of passages, so you'll need to turn quickly. Just four or five New Testament passages. Acts chapter 18, verse 21. How did the New Testament believer think about God and His sovereignty? Verse 21. I will return to you again if God wills. He set sail from Ephesus. I will return to you again if God wills. Pay attention to that phrase. If God wills. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. First Corinthians Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 7.
For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. You hear a developing mindset there from the New Testament believer? Man, it's, it, all, everything's dependent on whether the Lord wills and if the Lord permits. Now, this is something that's going to rock, rock your world. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. This passage here is defining a lot of my, and this reality that I, that I was just introduced to recently is further defining my approach to ministry. All right, listen to this. Verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 6. And this we will do if God permits. Okay, we've heard that. If God wills, if God permits. Okay, and this we will do if God permits. Pretty cool, huh? Not really, because you don't know what this is. Let's see what this is. Let's look back at verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. And this we will do. What will we do? Leave the elementary teachings about Christ and move on to maturity. If the Lord permits, be sanctified. If the Lord permits. We can't even grow up to maturity unless the Lord permits it. I'll tell you how that's defined in my ministry is I'm praying for y'all. And I'm praying for this people. I'm spending more time praying for y'all than I am pastoring y'all. I want to pastor y'all. I want to be there and shepherd and you know, talk about marriages and disciple and those, all those things. Those things are still important. But you know what's more important now? Realizing that y'all and us as a people will never grow to maturity unless the Lord permits it. So now I know where to go. Now I know who to talk to. Now I know who to beg. It's not about a program. It's not about preaching style. It's not about some high-speed silver bullet plan to engage our community and to grow y'all up to maturity. It's about begging the Lord to please permit it. That blows my mind. That's added a super heavy note of gravity. When the staff gathers and we write notes to y'all because we're praying for y'all, there's a burden back there when we gather in that room because we realize we're engaging the one that will grow this body, not us, not y'all. Not the elders. We're engaging the only one who will grow this body up to maturity. That that's a heavy time. That's an important time. We don't even move on to maturity but by God's permission. That sounds pretty sovereign to me. You hear that? I don't hear anything in there about my choice, my designs, my pursuits, my plans... Who's the one that grows, up to, grows us to maturity? God does. Now, I'm going to speak in a moment about means, and we'll get there. But for now, I'd rather you focus more on who the doer, the big D doer is. That's God. Okay, he's sovereign. James 4.15 is the next one. James 4.15. Again, we're just getting a small sampling of the New Testament Mindset on God's sovereignty. Chapter 4, verse 15. I'm going to look, uh, start back in verse 13, actually. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or do that. That's the mindset of the New Testament believer. If the Lord wills, we'll do that next week. We're actually uh, appointing five deacons this next Sunday. And I sent out an email to them. And two of, them, two of the five, because I wanted to find, make sure they were going to be here. I, I sent out the email last week just to show you how really on the ball we are. <laughs> hey, you going to be here a week after next? We can appoint you as deacons. And thankfully, they all are. But two of the five responded back and said, if the Lord wills, I'll be there. I was like, man, that's cool. One of them had been in on this two wills. Uh, Bill Ruth had been in on this study. And I think he's just conditioned by this mindset of seeing a big sovereign God. If the Lord wills, I'll be there. If he doesn't take me home first or if Christ doesn't come back first, I'll be there. That's a pretty cool mindset. That's a big view of God. It's a big view of sovereignty. The New Testament believers lived in the hands of God. They lived in the hands of God, but this wasn't new 
to New Testament believers. It's an Old Testament mindset also. Turn to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16. We're going to stay in Proverbs for a couple minutes and look at just a sampling of verses. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Look at verse 9 of the same chapter. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. <laughs> Hello, who's sovereign? God's sovereign. We think we're in control. We think that we're making our plans, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. We think we're making our own plans, but the Lord directs his steps. Look at verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap. You think that some things happen by chance, but every decision is from the Lord. Every? Which cereal I'm going to have for breakfast? Every. That's sovereignty. God's in on everything. I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I, I'm, I'm embracing that. I th you know, you think it's happenstance that you bump into somebody, that somebody pops into your head, the thought of somebody, that you have a conversation or a relationship with somebody, you think it's just um, happen, happens to be? Every decision is from the Lord. Here's some other verses, Proverbs 19, 21. How sovereign is God? Many plans are in a man's heart. This is chapter 19, verse 21. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Look at Jeremiah chapter 10. We're going to move out of that book to the book of Jeremiah and look at one verse real quick. Jeremiah chapter 10. Verse 23. I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. New Testament believed, or believers lived in the hands of God, but it wasn't new to God's people. That was that mindset and that understanding that God was sovereign was something that was familiar to Old Testament folks too. Now Jesus affirmed this huge sovereign God. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. Just how involved is God in the details? Let's look at this. Matthew chapter 10, <clears throat> verse 29. We had a little um, bird that got crushed by our um, garage door the other day. It's probably been a month ago or so, and our kids just freaked out. This dead bird on the ground, you know, just smushed like a pancake. And when I saw that little bird, I thought about this verse. Listen to this. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. That's affirmed by Jesus. That that bird didn't die except for God knowing about it. My garage door that I think was just happened by lot. Casting lots, the lot falls into the lap and you think it's just, ah, I happened to hit that button at the time where that bird would just get caught up in the chain or I don't know how, I don't know how it happened. Slow bird, or how, how do you do that bird? You know, look at that thing coming down on you. But you think it's just happenstance. That didn't happen except the Lord, that the Lord allowed it. Is God in on the details? I think he is. I think that's sovereignty defined. Now, Christ affirmed his own role in the details. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. This is one of my favorite passages in the Word because it has such, it invades everything. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. I'm doing Bible drill tonight. <clears throat> Listen to this verse. He, the speaking of Christ, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I've thought about that. In him 
all things hold together. My sandwich, my dagwood that I made at lunch, that seems stupid. That the bird doesn't fall to the ground except by him knowing about it. He's the one in whom all things are held together. So my sandwich, my cells, if you've ever studied the cell, you talk about a miracle. What an unbelievable little powerhouse. What an unbelievable, remarkable creation. All things are held together in him. My sandwich, my cells, my marriage, this church. All things are held together in him. I call that sovereignty. And I call that being in on the details. I love that. I'm going to leave you with a series of passages tonight. This is the best thing of tonight's study. These next few passages. Listen to these. Jot them down. Actually, you won't need to jot them down because this study so far, I went to print off my copy today. That's about five pages because it's kind of been building, five or six pages. And I just printed something that I made 20 of. So I have 20 copies of this high-speed thing. And I, I told Rhonda, I said, everybody's going to think I'm such a great teacher producing that document for me. It's an accident. But it's got all these verses we've been talking about these last few weeks where you can have a hard copy of it. And you can go, hey, man, look at this. Whoa, look at that. You got it in hard copy form. So anyway, here's these last verses. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10. These are the things that you should really get excited about when you consider sovereignty. And you consider how much has got in on the details. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10. We're not quite to the really exciting things yet, but this is getting close. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Okay, the next one is Daniel chapter 4. Verse 35. Sovereignty passages. Chapter 4. Verse 35. Just to give you a little setting of this one. This is Nebuchadnezzar. Who thinks he's the man. You know, Nebuchadnezzar from VeggieTales. Okay. He thinks he's the man. And um, he has a dream or he has a vision, and this vision is fulfilled. Fulfilled. Um, let's see where I'm going to start. Verse 31, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And th- just, just realize, because he's not really sovereign. He thinks he is. But he's not really sovereign, the big S, worldwide, in control of all things, sovereignty. So this, what little sovereignty he thought he had has been removed from you and you'll be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whoever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. I love that. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws. And at the end of the period, Nebuchadnezzar raised his eyes toward heaven and he says, my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Listen to this. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have I done? Do we have to grow feather-like hair and big old long claws and eat grass before we realize that God is sovereign and not man? That God is control of all things. That all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing compared to this sovereign God? Nebuchadnezzar had learned the hard way a mouthful of grass it's quite educational a couple more passages hang in there this is the best part coming up not quite there but coming up Job 42 verse 2 I'm going to do super sword drill so unless you're really a wizard you'll have a difficult time hanging with me but you can read this later 
Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 115, verse 3. Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Now, here's the pictures that I really, really want y'all to embrace because here's where sovereignty becomes, you know, even if you haven't liked it, even if you haven't liked the thought of God being in on such great detail, you must like the thought of this. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Who does it? God does it. He will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. If you're like, man, I don't like a sovereign God. I like him because I need him. I need him to circumcise my heart so that I love him so that I may live. So both the loving and the living come from God. We don't love him and then he saves us. He gives us even the loving. I'm thankful for his sovereignty. I'm going to embrace it. Even if, even if it's uncultural, I don't know what it is. Even if it's unsavory to the Western mind, I really don't care. And this used to be quite peripheral for me. And it used to be quite peripheral, at least for the mindset of my preaching. And now it's becoming, it's central to the gospel. I want people to know the biblical God. It's less, uh, I don't care, yeah, I care how people receive it. But I care more about being obedient to what it says. Listen to this. When we talk about sovereignty, listen to this, fa- this passage. Ezekiel chapter 36 Verse 26, moreover, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I can't even be obedient to him except that he causes me to to be obedient. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people and I will be your God. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new spirit. He gives us a new life. That's sovereignty. It's all from him. I'm okay with that. I'm not apologetic about that. It's all from him. It's all over the word. Here's the last passage that I'll share with you. Jeremiah. Chapter 32, verse 40. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from them to do them good, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so they will not turn away from me. Who put what in who? I will put the fear of God in their hearts. We can't even fear God except that he gives it to us. That's sovereignty. That's a big God. I, I, I realize tonight may be real foreign. It may be, this like, may be like, man, this is not a God that I've met before. It's not a God that I'm familiar with. I told you that I was going to talk about means, and I think what I'm going to do in regards to means is you may have the questions, you know, how do I fit into this? Because God calls us to do some things, and I, 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 next Wednesday I'll teach on means, and, and, I, and I'll ask and answer that question from the word where where does our work fit into things but i'm gonna leave you with this thought from john piper so well said listen to this the new covenant promise is that god will not let his purposes for a holy people shipwreck on the weakness of human will (laughs) i'm gonna say that again i'm just it's rich the new covenant promise is that god will not let his purposes for a holy people shipwreck on the weakness of human will man that's sovereignty that's a big god and a more realistic view of man next week we'll look at means and um, there's so many passages that show where our work fits in you know where our decisions where our pursuits and even our choices so if you're having a tough time fitting those all together we'll look at that next week and explore that let me pray Appreciate y'all letting me go over a little bit. Apologize to the kid workers when you go pick your kids up. Tell them it was my fault. God, we thank you so much for this uh, 
which just just rich wonderful picture of a big god and we um just appreciate all these passages all these satellites that are added into this view this more robust understanding of who you are and how powerful you are and how sovereign you are and how in on the details you are or given that the details of our lives our marriages our relationships our work environment our um Everything, everything that we are, every compartment that we have, we just ask that it'll be invaded by you and that we can just turn them over to you, recognizing that you are Lord of all. We thank you that you're the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow and that you are predictable from this word, that we can get to know how you uh, operate, that we can get to know what your character is and that we can understand um, this gospel better and understand exactly what you're doing there. Uh, we thank you so much for Christ. We thank you so much that he has uh, experienced and enjoyed and savored and um, dined on in the backdrop of judgment and wrath. And we recognize that but for his blood and but for his finished work and but for your sovereign election and even your sovereign choice that our lot would be extreme wrath and extreme judgment and a lake of fire. We thank you for that, Lord, and we confess that it's not due to anything in us but just to your sovereignty and your um, grace we embrace those things lord we confess them we celebrate them and uh, we just enjoy them in christ's name we pray amen thanks y'all